0: This is Ron Carucci, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader.
1: Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best selling author and recovering academic. And this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 717 or text radio free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox, so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 717, or text "Radio Free" all one word, to 33444. I want to remind you all, my new book, Under New Management, is out. The reviews that we are getting are great. The impact that it's getting is great from Twitter to emails to Facebook posts, All sorts of different people have been reaching out to me to tell me what they thought and teaching me a thing or two about how some of the ideas that I profile in the book are being applied in ways that I didn't even know about. It's actually a really, really cool learning opportunity. So thank you to all of those that have sent in messages on that. If you haven't already had a chance to check out a copy of the book, just head over to my website, davidberkus.com. From there, you can go links to your favorite retailer to grab a copy of Under New Management. Today's episode features Ron Carucci. Ron is, like myself, a recovering academic. He's turned consultant and author of the new book, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. Now this book is based off of uh, an unprecedented study on what leaders face as they rise to power, as they rise to that CEO spot. So whether you're in that role already or whether you're just starting out in your career and you want to know what it takes to sort of grow in your leadership capacity, Rising to Power is a great book and Ron has some great insights for you in this interview. So let's get started. So who are you
0: and what do you do? Hi, my name is Ron Carucci. I'm the managing partner at Navalent, a small boutique consulting firm that spends our days working with executives and CEOs transforming their organizations. Uh, and I get to spend my days working on some of the beefiest, medias challenges organizations face. No, and, and not just working with them, we should say.
1: You also study them like little lab rats, as it were. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they, I, I, there's no question I am indeed fascinated by when people organize human endeavor, whether that's at the country level or the enterprise level or the little league level. I think I've spent my life being fascinated by what happens when groups of people come together to try and accomplish something and all of the things that can go wrong uh, in that process. And so I do spend a lot of time thinking about the challenges and problems of that and that's why I write so that I can go figure out um, what the pesky little problems are that get in the way of organizing human endeavor and bring that – that learning back to the people I serve.
1: No, oh, I, I love it. I love it. And we, um, well, we actually met through a mutual friend, Dory Clark, and we met, yeah. I think, just before. You had this great article that um, has a lot of the same lessons that are that are in the book, but this great article on Harvard Business Review, basically sharing the results of one of your treating leaders like little lab rats. That's also a pun, by the way, because before we were Radio Free Leader, the show was called Leader Lab, and fans were called Leader Lab rats. So you know, you have literal leader lab rats um, <clears throat> in this study. I'm being mean, but really, I mean, I was actually fascinated with. Don't take this the wrong way, but for a consulting firm with the depth and rigor of the study, you know, so normally when you hear that a consulting firm has done a study, what that means is like we surveyed 200 people via email. And these are our results. But what you have is a really in-depth study that's longitudinal, has a lot of really, really um, a depth of data points and a lot of really cool insights. Before we talk about some of those insights, tell us a little bit about kind of what prompted you guys to begin this study and then also uh, how you conducted it. And then we'll get into kind of what were the, the lessons.
0: That's a deal. So... We've, we've known for more than 20 years, it's been a known statistic that about 50 to 60% of executives fail within the 14, eight, first 18 months of their appointment to a higher, bigger job. And, of course, executive recruiters are just fine with that stat because it keeps them in business. But, but we've just accepted that, that, that the odds are about a 50-50 shot that somebody we put or accelerate into a bigger job might make it or not. And when that began to become our client's, um, that began to be, it became personal for us. About 10 years ago, we did a, a similar body of research on emerging leaders. So it was one of the earlier bodies of, bodies of work around generational differences, and the differences between emerging and incumbent leaders, and why those emerging leaders were struggling in mainstream corporate America. Well, we followed those, those executives along their careers, and of course, many of them were accelerating their lives, as many millennials wish to do, into executive roles. So some of them were who we were following, and some of them were our own clients who are finding themselves atop business units, global functions, um, CEOs of enterprises, big, big jobs, and uh, struggling. And uh, one of our CEO clients um, called us one day. Um, we were working with a number of people on his team, some of whom were new to the C-suite. And one of them was struggling, and he was a little bit perturbed, saying, I'm paying you guys good money to help him. Why isn't it working? We, of course, felt like we were doing everything we could to help somebody succeed in a job they probably never should have been in. And it, be, it, it hurt. It was personal for us to watch good people um, move their families across the country, rearrange their lives, take big risks to come to other companies that recruited them into roles that they may have been well-suited for, but for mysterious reasons in this first 12 to 18 months somehow hit this invisible brick wall and meltdown. Um, And we thought, there's got to be a better way. Why do we have to accept this as the result? There's got to be a reason this is happening. And more importantly, there's got to be a way to stop it. And there's got to be some people who are actually succeeding. And there's other 50% who aren't flaming out. What is it they're doing? And how do we distinguish them? And how do we help more of them succeed? So we were sitting on top of about 7,000 diagnostic interviews over the last 20 years. And we decided to go back 10 years and select out 2,800 of those interviews um, along with all kinds of secondary data on executive failure and executive success and see if we could detect patterns, see if we could detect what is it that separates the best of the best from the worst of the best and learn uh, on behalf of our clients why it is that this happens and more importantly, how, how, how do you prevent it? so we, we, got a, we got some friends from IBM and uh, BYU um, who had an IBM Watson license to sort of help us with the massive you know content a- analytics which is a, it's a fascinating machine you just feed it you know all this information it actually reads it and in a terrifying way actually understands it and and statistically tells you what it's saying uh, and so we spent immersed ourselves in 99 regression analyses to make sure the data was actually saying what we believed it to be saying before we actually began to form the conclusions we did
1: I, yeah i love the uh i love the data point when i was reading uh, about the study 90 different regression analyses which is like even just figuring out one is uh, often a sort of like data overload for a time so now now though I've realized how you did it. You stole a, a license to use Watson and then Watson did it all for you. No, I'm totally kidding. Uh,
0: <laughs> so, Wait, listen, uh, David, I don't deny the help we had. We, w- we could have never done it and never found the insights we did had it not been for that machine's help.
1: Oh, no. And and the implications of that are super scary. But this is not the podcast to discuss those implications. Uh, <laughs> what I want to discuss the implications of the study itself. Yeah. Um, you found a, a lot of really cool, you found four patterns that are, are really sort of of um, data-driven, t- uh, two that I, I became sort of fascinated with. But I, I feel like I, we should at least tell all four, at least give people a preview before I geek out on two of them.
0: Yeah. So we, in our language, we, we code, code name them breadth, context, choice, and connection. We couldn't find a fourth C to make it a, a, a alliteration work. But breadth essentially means that executives that um, understand how all the pieces fit together. When you're working up into an organization, you work in the organization. When you get to the top, you have to work on the organization. And that means you have to know how all the pieces fit together. And many executives who rise up in a specific discipline or business have deeply entrenched biases and value views about the organization through the lens they came up with and struggle to understand a broader. So now they're going from playing first chair violin to conductor. And they have to know all the parts. Context means, and it's scary, David, how many people we ask, deconstruct your P&L for me, tell me how you make your money and they can't. They don't know the basics of how their business operates, how their industry operates, the competitive dynamics of how their industry is changing technologically or con- from a consumer point of view. They don't know the context in which their organization sits and how that affects their, their business. Um, choice means they how to make a decision. Um, they know how to use power uh, to combine uh, data, intuition, and the voices of others to construct great choices. Um, And they sit in a governing design that actually governs and proliferates good decisions. And the last one is about uh, connections about relationships. So these people, every every company has those set of leaders that everybody wants to work for. They have incredible regard from those they lead, from their peers, and from their bosses above them. They've just loved for good reasons. And these are those leaders. They have connections that they intentionally produce and sustain and cultivate all around them. So... Here was the scariest part of a study, David. The leaders that separated the best from the best from the worst of the best didn't do three out of four well. They did all four well. And part of the reason for all the regression analysis was me saying, I can't say that to the world. Go back and make sure it says it was all four. Go back and make sure it says it was all four. I wanted to believe that two out of four, three out of four could suffice, um, but it didn't. The ones that survived and thrived and made the greatest impacts on the performance of their organization, the people they lead, did all four well, and we just had to come clean with that and say, it's all four.
1: Hmm. Oh, see, now I know the secret. It wasn't 90. It was one done 90. No, I'm kidding. Um, (coughs) It was one. Yeah, exactly. No. So the one that – or one of the two that was really sort of fascinated me because uh, this was the first time I had data to – to back up one of my convictions, which was this idea that they know the whole business, right? So you get you get promoted up and through a certain leg. You're, you're the, the chief marketing officer or you're the chief financial officer or, or even nowadays, and I'd, I'd argue that maybe that leg gets them better prepared, but you're the chief human resource officer, et cetera. Um, but what you, you what you're usually then become is a very lopsided version of a chief executive officer because you see everything through that filter of marketing or through finance, et cetera. And you see this a lot of times with – as much as I love the promote from within sort of strategy, that sort of I think creates this, this bias – that always tilts you towards whatever problem your organization has, it's suddenly a marketing problem because that's how you know how to fix it. But in reality, it's usually a problem that affects almost every area.
0: I couldn't have said it better, David. And the reality is that it's not just the CEO and his team, it's his team. You know, when I work with executives' teams, I have to remind them, you're not, where, you're not here as the ambassador for marketing. You're not here as the ambassador from sales. You're not here as the ambassador from finance. You're here as an enterprise leader. Leave that hat at the door. And many of them struggle to do that. They struggle to know when to advocate for their own function or business unit and when to shed that hat and be an enterprise leader. And so they don't, they're not even aware of the biases that have formed that suddenly they're now allocating resources to their old buddies in sales or their old buddies in manufacturing. Or they're not even aware that they're solving problems through a, through a lens of you know, a, a discipline-centric world. Um, And it's probably because they didn't spend any time in their career on the way up working in other parts of the business. You know, I've always said, if you want to make a great finance executive, put him in supply chain for a year. If you want to make a great HR person, put him anywhere else. If you want a great marketing person, put him in sales. If you want to make a great sales executive, put him in in, um, manufacturing or, or, or logistics. Make them work in the part of the organization that has to live with the consequences of the discipline they own, and they'll become a way better executive.
1: Now, uh-huh. now, now, let me ask you this because you, you sort of said put them – on the HR issue, you said put them anywhere else. And I think that's – I mean it's funny. At the same time though, I, I think – and this is – I don't know if you have – I'm asking if you have any data for this basically because this has been one of my implications is that if you want a really good anywhere else, give them a stint in HR in a sense because – they, they may understand who the really great superstar people in sales and marketing side are, but until you get into sort of – I think it's the, the first peak at what the total talent of the organization is comes through that door. So while the, definitely the chief HR officer needs to do a stint somewhere else before they're ready to be CEO, I kind of feel like the chief anything else needs to do a stint in HR before they can become the CEO.
0: I, w- I would qualify my yes with if the HR function is really playing a strategic talent role in the enterprise. Okay, that's fair. If it's a marginalized HR function that's barely processing benefits and doing employee relations work and not really much else, and the entire HR community feels marginalized and like they have no seat at the table, then I'd say no. But if, as long as you continue to drive that talent management is the role of every executive and the HR job is to build the strategy to do it, um, then yes, appreciating what it takes to build a comprehensive talent strategy that makes really hard decisions about the most expensive asset you're managing to do a to do a stint in that job um uh i'd say yes
1: okay no that's fair that's fair one of the other insights that i thought was fascinating was around decision making and it's actually um i mean obviously we know that that it stands to reason that great leaders are great decision makers, et cetera. And I love that you've got data for that. But one thing really stood out when I was reading about the, the, the overall study and the insights from it was that, and the reason it stood out is that I literally had this conversation a couple of days ago, um, in an interview I was giving to promote my recent book. And they asked me about, is it, is it intuition or is it about evidence-based management? And I love that you offer here that, that it's kind of it's a balance of the two of them. There are those leaders that just go with their gut feel and there are those leaders that almost go to analysis paralysis because they want so much data and your data, your study sort of shows that they the great decision makers are the ones that can kind of figure out how to do both and how to balance them. And it's a sort of art and science.
0: Uh, to, 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 totally what we found. And beyond that, they knew who to include, right? Mm. So, you yeah, when, when, when we, we lend this lens to the one of the one of the chapters in the book is all about power. We we assume that what we would uncover is, um, you know, uh, character flaws of people who just could were self indulgent and in abusing of power, and could not stand to you know, couldn't resist the temptations to use power for their own good. Um, there there was that set of people, but the vast majority of power abuse was the abdication of it. It was leaders who could not tolerate the amount of influence their role required of them, or so fearful of being seen as power abusers that they abdicated it. And so what that, what that meant was when it came to making a hard decision, they couldn't do it. So when, when, when there was a bottleneck, they, they were the ones that were labeled as indecisive or inconclusive or so overly inclusive of others' voices and so wanting to make sure they didn't disappoint anybody that they couldn't actually make a hard call and make, tr- and, and make the trade-offs that have to happen at the top of the organization.
1: Hmm. No, I didn't. Oh, sorry. So
0: the you know the challenge is that they became so desiring to please people and so fearful of the popularity implications of a hard decision, they became paralyzed and so they couldn't include the right voices and they couldn't they ignored the data that was in front of them and they couldn't let their intuition, which was usually accurate, um, rise above the fear of the implications. You know, we tell our executives, leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. Hmm. And, and if you're unable to do that, you know, your decision-making is part of the power that comes with your role. If you can't exercise it in a way that serves the greater good, even at the expense of an individual who's going to not have things go their way, then you're actually abusing your power by abdicating it.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. Um, and I, I- – I totally agree, and I, I, forgot, I feel I'm kicking myself, actually, because I forgot to mention the who else to bring in type thing, which I think is, like you said, is huge and a really interesting insight from the study. The, um, the study gave way to uh, the book, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives, which I think is really cool because instead of just saying, like, do these five things, you framed the book as sort of here is the, the story of the the ascent, right, The the journey that you have to go on to become one of these leaders who can do all four things. And I, I kind of wonder, I'm not, I don't want you to summarize the entire book because I want people to go check it out. But I kind of wonder, so we talked about these things that these sort of great executives do, and you have a book that, that sort of tracks the trajectory of getting to that great leader. So to those that are listening and are definitely not even in that role yet, maybe they're not in a manage, even a frontline management role. Maybe they just started in management. Maybe they're a, a high potential you know, development program, future leader type of situation. What advice from the study and from the book do you feel like you would give them? If, you had, if, if they only had like five minutes of your time, what would you tell them?
0: start the journey much sooner than you think you have to and really be aware of the many, many landmines on your way, on the way up. I think that was one of the shocks to us, David, was how many things there are that can get in your way, on the way up. Classic example. Uh, We call it the myth of the mandate. So many executives are brought in from outside a company or put into a role with a sense of, oh, you've turned the sales force around before, do it again. Or you've built out supply chain capability before, do it again. And there's this implied mandate, spoken or unspoken, to repeat past successes, right? You've got this track record, so repeat it. Come up, get, get a bigger job or come up to do it. Um, the danger in that, it, I, can't even, I can't even describe, uh, it can't be overstated, because now you're reaching back for a formula and you're going to slap it on the context you're in and ignore context. And almost always it doesn't work. And we all, we've all seen the movie of a leader in a bigger job or new from the outside, you know, trying to impose a formula or a recipe on a situation that just will not absorb it and they flame out. Hmm. And, we, and, and then it gets labeled the infamous, they weren't a fit.
1: Right, yeah. I do feel like we attribute way too much to fit than could just be by chance.
0: Or that it was a bad pick in the first place. Well, true, yeah. you didn't set up hmm. to succeed. You didn't design the job or design the role or pave a pathway for them to be successful. So they're alienating people. They're, they're immediately alienating stakeholders. They have to glue to. They're, um, you know, we we call it the you, you, when your halo becomes a noose. Everybody's halo factor. Suddenly they hang themselves with it because they spend so much time dwelling on past successes. They take the mandate bait and start. You know, and of course, the the then the, then what happens is we call it um, the indictment of a software. So here's we've we've all seen in this movie, right? The new person comes in, and they start turning over all the rocks, and and the shock sets in, and and the inevitably the how have your people survived this long, living like this without these systems and processes? Now you have a bunch of people who you've come to lead and guide feel judged and indicted by you, um, who are now going to withdraw their support, right? So now you bring in all your consultants, you bring in all your own friends from old jobs to come in, and now you have the old guard versus the new guard. Because you came in to institute a change, I mean there's nobody that could come in at a director level or above without some mandate to do something differently, now you've launched a revolution and instead of launching a revolution in the service of the future, you've launched a civil war. Um, With the best of intentions, you meant well, you believe in what you're doing. Um, you've decided to write off the incumbent people there because you, and I, we actually heard a, a leader say this, they're all off the back of a turnip truck here. You know. Um, and these veteran incum, incumbent people who've been there for years, devoted to the organization, loving of the history of it, no one knows more than them how much pain they're in because some of their technology is antiquated or their processes are not good. But you have a cultural grist of commitment there you cannot tamper with. And if you piss on that, you're asking them to revolt against you right? So those are, and we see those as commonplace every day when people are promoted up or brought in and so even before you can get to the top and succeed with those four dimensions you, you have to you have to get through all the landmines to get there. Now it turns out we, at the end of the book, we reorganized the entire book. We, we To your point, we wanted to organize the book around the journey not the answer. But at the end of the book we reorganized the entire book and a set of pages around saying, okay, breath, context, choice, and connection are your answer on the way up to right? So here's how All the other stages of ascent map to those four dimensions, but we didn't want people to read it that way because we wanted them to experience it as if they're experiencing it on the way up um, and avoiding all those landmines and avoiding all those very avoidable traps so they get the chance to be successful at the top and make an an impact and a difference that they want to make.
1: Yeah. No, that's great advice. I I love that you uh, sort of have that sort of kind of dual structure. And I think especially because... Uh, I don't want to make demographic assumptions, but we being a podcast, I think you're actually you're absolutely right. We tend to sort of skew younger to people who are not at that senior role, but who are probably already late in the game to begin. Because I love your advice that you should begin this whole thing because of all the landmines that are out there before you even think you should. So it's, it's good advice, and it's actually a cool um, segue because the very first of our five questions for all guests that come on the show is – what's the best advice you've ever received? You've just given some leaders the best advice they've ever received. What's the best advice you've ever received?
0: Woman who's been my mentor and colleague and friend for probably 25 years. Um, I taught at Fordham University with her for 20 years. Amazing woman. Uh, And she said to me, nothing is irrevocable except death. Uh, And it's a constant reminder in my mind that Second chances are made not born. There are some things you don't get a second chance at. But, but we, we, when we get fearfully minded or too conservative or too anxious about what we might make or what others might think or we kick ourselves out of the game before we even put ourselves in it and don't even give ourselves a chance to be successful, we ha- I, I, I have to remind myself you know, in my own second guessing, in my own anxiety, in my own fear that, listen, nothing is irrevocable except death. I, you know, if this does not work out, if this dream I pursue, if this chance I take, if this feedback I give doesn't work out, um, it isn't the end of the world and I shouldn't behave as if it could be. Um uh, and I, it's a very, for me, it was a very liberating piece of advice when she gave it and it's remained a very liberating mantra ever since.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's great advice. Um, <clears throat> what does an average day look like for you?
0: Gosh, well, you know, as a consultant and an academician, no two are the same. But usually, I spend in the morning I spend time uh, reading some articles or reading some just some quiet reading with coffee, and taking a handful of vitamins. Um, uh, And then my day proceeds with either client meetings or meetings with other people in my firm, or conversations about you know projects with clients or projects, conversations about how we're going to get clients. and usually it's, there's a, at some point multiple times of the day I'm texting with or FaceTiming with my kids who are in college somewhere so talking to them about their day uh, and on my better days I get to the gym and I get to go do an hour on the elliptical machine or something that makes me sweat um, and uh, you know and then uh, binge on whatever my you know TV, TV binge-watching is for that day usually, and it's maybe once a week I get, I get to do that, but uh, there's a couple of, you know, my own guilty pleasures I uh, 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 TV shows I binge-watch and then uh, go to sleep and do it again.
1: Hmm so The kids in college must leave you time to binge-watch on TV. We don't watch anything in our house that's not on Disney Junior, so, you know, that's <laughs> our life. What are you reading right now?
0: Uh, so, um, I'm in the middle of uh, Manfred Kettavri's new book. It's called Mindful Coaching: uh, The Journey, the, the Journey to the Deeper Interior. I think is the subtitle. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, obviously, I'm a, I'm a huge devotee of his bring how he blended the clinical and the business worlds. But this book really gets deeper on issues of attachment and some of the real clinical issues coaches need to be mindful of as they bring their work to, to their executives. I, I'm a, I'm a very, I hate the word coaching. I hate the industry. I hate what it's done to the work of developing leaders because it's done so schlocky and by so many people who aren't qualified to be doing it um, and who are completely unmindful of the clinical realities of what they're doing. And so I, I love his work. And it's a fascinating book and it's a fascinating read. Hmm,
1: hmm. What do you believe that most people don't?
0: Gosh, I don't know if, I, if it's most people don't believe this. Um, I do tend to see more people um, approaching the world as a, as a glass half-empty, cynical, people-are-going-to-screw-me kind of world. Um, and it causes them to be defensive. And maybe they have a pain in their life that would have taught them that. Um, and I, I'm also not a f- fan of pie-in-the-sky optimism either. You know, the glass is always half-full. I think my theory is if the glass is is in full, just fill it. Don't spend time debating whether it's half empty or half full. Just fill it. Um, it's a it's a sort of a, a a pragmatist approach to to, con- to contribution, right? Who cares what you label it? It needs to be filled. Just fill it. Mm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That somebody's listening and going, that's the best advice I've ever received. No, I'm kidding. The <laughs> actually, I'm not kidding. The uh, title of the show. As well, this this is our final question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader?
0: Gosh, you know, it's I mean, how many different cliche answers we've heard about this question? Right? I mean, at the end of the day, it's simply people following you, right? If you if you haven't got people who want to who, who want to care about a vision you have, um, then you're not leading. Um, but beyond that, if you do have people, if if you are enjoying the privilege of people following you, um, you better care. Um, and so the, one of the first things I look for in executives that I work with is um, how, how much of your day is about you and how much your day is about others. And if, if there's too much of your day about you, uh, you know, you're in the wrong job. And so the, the, the dirty little secret about leadership that nobody wants to talk about is that if you're going to lead, you're going to suffer. It, this is a sacrificial, difficult, painful role. It shouldn't only be that. It shouldn't be only be, you know, wanting to tear your hair out. Um, but – There's a cost to leading. It's a personal sacrificial cost uh, at your own expense for the greater good of those you're there to serve. And if you don't understand that, um, you probably shouldn't be doing it.
1: Deep thoughts, indeed. And not just based on your experience, but 10 years and 2,700 interviews, 2,800 interviews experience and lots and lots of data. So Ron, the book again, Rising to Power, The Journey of Exceptional Executives. Check out the study and the HBR article as well. Ron, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free
0: Leader. David, so great to be with you. Thanks for having me.